Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Today I'm very pleased to be talking with Trey Grayson, who is perhaps best known for running against Rand Paul for the Kentucky Republican Senate nomination in 2010. Mr. Grayson is currently the president and CEO of the Northern Kentucky Chamber of Commerce. From 2011 to 2014, he served as director of Harvard University's Institute of Politics. Prior to that, he was a two-term Kentucky Secretary of State. He earned an A.B. in government from Harvard in 1994 and a J.D. M.B.A. from the University of Kentucky in 1998. Trey Grayson, welcome to the Politics Guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, to start with, I, I read in, in a bio of you that you are actually a Democrat until you graduated from Harvard and then came back to Kentucky. And I guess that struck me because I followed a very similar path that, that pretty much around the same time, we're, we're close to the same age as you did, though not at Harvard. And more importantly, I switched from the Republicans to the Democrats. Um, so I was wondering, why did you decide to switch parties and how difficult was it for you to make that switch? Yeah, um, that's more or less an accurate time frame. I think the, I think I actually changed. So I graduated from college in 94 and I believe it was like late, late 96, early 97 that I actually, uh, did the party switch? You know, it was part, it was kind of a kind of an evolution of things. I mean, to start off with, when I turned eighteen, um, I didn't give a lot of thought to the political party because, as a Kentuckian back then, it was kind of like you know I wanted to vote in a primary for governor. And I remember my my parents, my dad in particular, who generally voted for Democrats at the governor's level and Republicans at the federal level. And he and I were pretty similar on views. He's like, you got to, you know, register as a Republican, so you can, or, sorry, register as a Democrat so you right. can vote in the primary. And then, you know, you can vote for the best candidate in the fall. So that's what I did. And I kind of found myself, I guess, in the middle of the two parties. Liked, you know, I was a child of the 80s. I was, I was a fan of Reagan, um, but also like, liked, uh, you know, like JFK. And, and, um, and, and it was a matter, I think, mostly of just figuring out where I really stood, what I believed. And the more I read, the more I thought, the more comfortable I was that I really was a Republican. And um, and it was an interesting story, actually, about how I ultimately came to, to change the party affiliation. Right after the 96 election, I had gone back to for a, a reunion. The Institute of Politics, or IOP, at Harvard was having its 30th anniversary party. And I went back because I was a student. As an undergrad, I was pretty involved with the IOP, and I went back to see some old friends and ran into Frank Luntz, who most people on this who listen to this podcast would know who Frank Luntz is, but um, mm. in case you don't, he's the guy who's best known for doing a lot of focus groups during presidential campaigns and debates and things like that. And back then, he was a pollster um, and had just done polling for Pat Buchanan, and he was kind of known as the Republican pollster, understood like some of the folks who were opposed to President Bush, and he had spent a semester at Harvard, and I got to know him. And I ran into Frank right when I walked in the front door of the IOP. And I said, hey, Frank, how's it going or something like that? And he said, hey, when are you becoming a Republican? <laughs> so uh, good to see you too, Frank. You know, And he right. kept kind of repeating this, like, yeah, shut up. When you become a Republican, you know you've always been a Republican. Everybody here knew you always were a Republican. Eventually, I got him off that topic and then was told him that the couple of days and then Sunday morning, there was going to be a brunch with a bunch of current students and recent alums. He should come by. So he did. And when he showed up, 
uh, fashionably late, he sort of took control of the conversation and essentially turned it into a little focus group. He would ask everybody there, are you a Republican or a Democrat? Why? What do you think of when you think about the parties? And every time I tried to talk, he wouldn't let me talk. And I quickly <laughs> realized he was doing this for my benefit. And in listening to everybody explain why they were Republican or why they were Democrat or what they thought about both parties, I kind of had an epiphany. <laughs> I remember right. this is this is all true. I mean, I remember landing when I came back back home at CBG. My parents picked me up and they said, how was the weekend? I said, it's great, Mom and Dad, but guess what? I'm a Republican. Whoa. <laughs> I changed the, my card. Um, a few years later, I got to tell Frank. Actually, I got after I got elected Secretary of State, I ran into him in Washington and I said, I don't know if you remember this or not. And I don't know if you intended to do this or not, but it worked. And that's how I, I probably would have come to the realization anyway, but that was the actual moment that Frank Luntz uh, awakened me <laughs> to wow. becoming a Republican. And the irony was it took place at Harvard. Wow. No kidding. So yeah. was it was it hard for you to kind of wrap your head around that to sort of identify as as a Republican? I know for me in the early days, it's still there was that kind of visceral hold that my old party had on me. I don't know if you experienced anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, you know what I did is I um, the day I decided I'd become a Republican, I actually held off putting the card in the mail, the voter registration change card, because I said, all right, I'm going to like make sure that this isn't just a. Uh, you know, I'm having a bad day right. or a weak moment or was susceptible to somebody making a good argument. And I wanted this. So I decided I'm, I'm going to view politics through the lens of I'm now a Republican. This is my party. Um, and so I, you know, read news. I followed politics for, I don't know, a few weeks or a few months. That's why I don't remember exactly when I did the official changeover, because this conversation would have been like November of 96, right after the election. Okay. And I might have waited until January of 97 to actually do the card hand the card in. But yeah, it took a couple months and I was comfortable with it. And now, you know, I'm still, even with all the craziness of the Republican Party, um, I still find myself much more comfortable as a Republican than a Democrat. And, and every time my Democratic friends ask me, hey, come on over, I'm like, mm, no, right. you know, I know where I, I know where I stand on, a, on the ideological spectrum and and uh, the Republican Party um, for all of its travels right now is, is that's definitely where I belong. But it was an interesting Change and I remember um, even somebody reaching out to me on the Democratic Party say, "Hey, will you help us with this campaign?" And I'm like, uh, "I can't. We're on opposite sides." Yeah, now. <laughs> yeah. So did it? Did that cause you any problems? Uh, did people give you much grief about that when you ran for office? You know, it never really became an issue, and I don't know in the grand scheme of things how much of an issue it became. But it wasn't really until actually the 2010 race with um, when I ran against Rand. I mean, when I when I made my political debut as a candidate in 2003 as a Republican, um, you know, I talked about it. In fact, I especially talked about it when I would go to Western Kentucky, because out of, in Western Kentucky, there were so many Democrats who had become Republican or were voting Republican. And back then, the way you have won a statewide race as a Republican was to do really well in Western Kentucky. So we camped out in Western Kentucky in 03. And even in 07, when, when you know, I was able to win and Governor Fletcher lost re-election, we spent a lot of time out there, too. And I remember... You know, Ronald Reagan was once a Democrat. Ed Whitfield was once a Democrat. You know, mm -hmm. I think Ernie Fletcher, I think even Governor Fletcher was once a Democrat, as I recall. Um, I said, I was once a Democrat. Come join us. Or if you can't join the party, at least join us on Election Day. And so I talked about it. But when I ran in 2010, and it could just be because that was the only primary I ever had, um, that's when it came up. And I remember, you know, Rand would give me a hard time. And, and so sometimes it would just slip into news stories that I had once been a Democrat. But the irony is I'd been a Republican secretary of state longer 
that I actually was a registered Democrat. All right. Well, um, you, you know, I, the thing that you did that switching over really is something that uh, was I don't know if it was big enough to be a phenomenon, but certainly it wasn't incredibly uncommon in the 1980s and through the 1990s, especially especially in the South, when a number of people, I think, felt disconnected from what their party had been. Yeah, yeah, and in Northern Kentucky in particular, I mean, we have there are a lot of folks up here who, who you know, like me, were Democrats, and and, and the, there was a certain age it was easier to switch. I mean, I, you know, I think back to a guy like Ken Lucas, who was the congressman from our district for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, if Ken were born were my age, he would be a Republican, like his kids are. Right, right. <laughs> um, but he registered Democrat back. Democratic back then. And so um, it was interesting. And, you know, I don't think it was that big of a deal at the end of the day in 2010, but that was that was the only primary I ever had. And so that's when it came up a little bit. And, uh, you know, I just tried to you know, say, look, I, you know, I didn't I wasn't convinced that birth of my party affiliation and, you know, if it was good enough for Reagan to switch. It was good enough for me. So, uh, you know, always invoke Reagan when you're. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> So uh, in in 2010, at least initially, you were considered the Republican establishment's candidate for the seat that Jim Bunning had held for a while. And and I, along with plenty of other people, really expected that you'd be the nominee. I was, in fact, hoping that you'd be the nominee. Um, Now, Rand Paul ended up winning the primary and, of course, the seat. I'm wondering what lessons you might have taken away from that experience. Yeah, I mean, I thought I'd win, too, when we got in the race. Um, it, it was an odd race because, you know, the folks who I kind of wanted to line up for the most part, some of their levels of support as volunteers, as donors, endorsements, all those people came through. But it was the kind of race, uh, kind of year. Rand was the kind of opponent that um, it just uh, it just wasn't meant to be. I mean, I, I think there are a couple of lessons. I mean, the, the first thing I would say is is hats off to Rand. I mean, he was he was the right guy at the right time. Um he was able to tap into his father's network of, of donors, which made him legitimate, but he was, you know, but I don't want to say that's the only reason why he won because that's not fair. Um, right. But it, but certainly if I've been running against another a doctor from Bowling Green named Randy Smith, who had the exact same views, the exact same personality and skill set, uh, I would have won. I mean, it was the money that allowed him to become credible, but then Rand himself, you know, took advantage of that door. You know, you, you could, the, the door could have been opened by the money and the brand name, but sure. he, had to, he had to take advantage of that. Lots of kids of politicians lose, um, and he was able to, to do that. But I think, you know, it was a year, it was a race where the Republican electorate, and, and Heinz, it, you know, in hindsight, this is obvious, but at the time it wasn't so obvious, was really looking for somebody to shake things up in Washington and to send a message to Washington. Um, and, and so an outsider was... Really, that's what they wanted. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. When I look at this race, I'm like, you know, I wasn't the kind of candidate that they wanted to send to Washington. I I wanted to go to Washington to try to make it work better, to fix it along, you know, ideological Republican conservative lines. Um, Rand, I think, was a little bit more of a, a vote for Rand was more of a, a vote to, to shake things up. And that was the um, the message that he ran on. And he had the ability to, to communicate that message. And, you know, an incumbent secretary of state was – who, which on the one hand was for those people who paid attention to politics, I had some name ID and I had some brand ID, but among, you know, it wasn't very deep. I wasn't, I was probably a lot weaker, you know, than, or I was a lot weaker than I think we all thought as far as, uh, as a candidate, because I hadn't won in an actual primary. I hadn't been the top of a ticket before. Um, and we just, you know, we made some assumptions about the race that just kind of proved incorrect. I mean, one was that, um, 
when his dad ran the two years earlier, his foreign policy views, his father's foreign policy views were kind of out of the mainstream and they were almost disqualifying. And our survey data showed the same thing among the Republican electorate. And but the, we, what we didn't really think through the fact is that when you're running for Senate, that stuff isn't as primary concern as it is when people are running for president. Right. right. Um, and then also there's a question about how accurate was the polling data, because primaries are hard to survey uh, in, in the, anyway. But, um, you know, it was I have a lot of great memories of that race. And, um, you know, but there's not any one thing I'd look back and say, oh, if I'd done that, you know, I would have won um, or anything like that. It was just it was just what just wasn't meant to be. And, and um you know, I'm content with that. Well, you know, in in a way, it seems like at least what I see as your style of republicanism is is, is sort of a a dying breed. I mean, I, I think of uh, like John Boehner and uh, even Mitch McConnell, people who certainly have strong ideological beliefs and principles, but also I feel are more pragmatic about how things get done in Washington and what needs to be done to sort of advance the common interest. And it seems to me, I think it seems to a lot of people on both the left and the right, that over the last, though, six or eight years, some of that has really been lost. And it's a lot It's a lot harder for uh, what I would call mainstream establishment Republicans, what a lot of people in the party now, I guess, would call rhinos to sort of get elected and to really do what they were elected to do is, you know, is help people out. Well, yeah, I mean, I th- I, the, the electoral results, I think, kind of indicate that. I mean, at some point, the pendulum will probably swing back a little bit. Um, you know, we'll see how this election plays out. But um, at the end of the day, I, 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 when I was Secretary of State, when I was running for re-election, I remember our tagline or, or what we wanted voters to leave, which wasn't really a tagline in 07, was playing by the rules and getting things done. You know, somebody could get things done. That right. was what I, I wanted voters to think about me. And, you know, I think eventually voters will come around to recognizing that um, it's not just enough to be angry or to show you the how upset you are at a certain problem. You got to try to fix them. And um, and then those they'll, they'll start to vote accordingly. But it is right now both parties. I think it's not just the Republicans. I mean, the, the Hillary Clinton phenomena is, I think, squelched a little bit on the left. But the fact that Bernie Sanders got darn near 50 percent of the vote in the Democratic primary shows me that the Democrats are grappling with some of this as well. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be an interesting couple of years um, as, as both parties figure out how to navigate um, nav- navigate the, 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 the candidates doing well, who um, may be the kinds that sound good or appeal to, to the base, um, but have a hard time actually getting legislation through to, to address yeah. the problems that we've got. Yeah, definitely. Now, I know not too long after that election, you you went back to Harvard to become the director of their Institute of Politics. And I was wondering what it was like going from politics in the real world to uh, an academic position. It was an interesting job because, you know, we were I didn't actually teach classes. So we were basically I was administering an uh, an extracurricular program, working with staff, working with a couple hundred students. It was fascinating. I mean. When I took the job, I, I knew that I still believed in, in politics. I still believed that good people could run and win and make a difference. And I wanted to maybe inspire the next generation of students to go on and, and try to make their own change. And that's that's the goal of the, the mission of the IOP is to inspire students to go into politics and public service. And it was interesting being in a place where you know, you had heads of states coming in and world leaders and top thinkers, um, presidential candidates 
um, journalists, politicos, and some really bright students all kind of mixing together. Um, so I, I had a great three and a half years. It was a, it was a fun time with my family, um, getting to expose them to different different things. Um, you know, my kids rode the same bus as Mitt Romney's grandkids, hmm. which I thought was kind of fun. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember when, when uh, Alex found out that uh, found out about it, she came home and she said one day that she heard two boys talking that uh, Chris Christie had just endorsed this one kid's grandfather. And she's like, who's that guy's grandfather? I'm pretty sure it's Mitt Romney. She came back. Turned out it was Joe Romney. Oh, okay. Son, Joe, Mitt's oldest grandson. And, um, you know, they were going to the same public schools and, and they got to experience a lot of different things as well. But it was a it was a really enjoyable experience. I mean, even in the last couple of days, um, as we're recording this, Dilma Rousseff, the president of um, Brazil, who was just removed from office, we hosted her at Harvard when I was the IOP director. And I got to meet her, and I remember one of the things that uh, we actually almost created an international incident because we have a rule that you have to take questions in the audience that are unfiltered. It's one of the rules at the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum that we have at the IOP. And everybody's well aware of this. We don't let you. We don't. We don't let you to. Um, we tell everybody that. And if you accept the invitation, that's the rule. And about an hour before her talk, she had uh, decided she was tired, didn't want to ask any questions, answer any questions. And so um, the dean at the Kennedy School at the time basically convinced her to take the questions. Well, we were about ready to cancel the event. Wow. <laughs> she didn't need to take any questions. Jeez. And uh, we had an auditorium full of folks and live tele- you know, television broadcast back in Brazil. But she answered the questions. They were actually pretty easy. At the time, she was pretty popular. Um, and I remember one of the questions was like, are we going to win the World Cup this year? <laughs> she said yes. Uh, and so she had a great experience. But um, it's been certainly interesting watching her over the last couple of years um, fall from grace, fall from power. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, I also think it's important to note uh, for, for, for listeners that uh, Harvard actually hired a Republican to run yeah. their Institute of Politics. So, you know, yeah, that's... yeah. No, it wasn't an accident. They knew. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I was not actually the I was not the first um, Dick Thornburg, who was the attorney general for President Bush for a while, governor of Pennsylvania. He served as the director. And so did Alan Simpson, um, the former senator from Wyoming. He was the director for a couple of years in the 90s. Um, so, yeah, we're, it's a bipartisan place. And being a memorial to President Kennedy, one of the things that's nice about President Kennedy is he's somebody who, while he was a Democrat, a lot of Republicans have really positive views of him. And um, the IOP is a nonpartisan place. So we were, um, yeah, it was a it was a great time to be there and just wonderful experiences. I like getting up there whenever I can. Oh, yeah. So I know after that, then you came back home to become the CEO of North Kentucky's Chamber of Commerce. And so what uh, drove your decision to get back into politics, especially politics at the local level or regional level, I guess. Yeah, you know, I've always viewed the IOP, and, and actually the IOP director's job is was viewed as kind of a temporary job. The idea is to have somebody come in for a few years from the field to share knowledge with the students and the administrators and the, and the faculty, and then go back. And, and so I wanted to, always wanted to come back home, wasn't sure when that would, was going to be. And the timing worked out really well. My older daughter was going to get ready to start her freshman year in high school. My younger daughter was going to start middle school. And the chamber job was open. And so that particular year, that particular summer, I really targeted to try to get a job to come back home and and pursued a couple of different things. And the chamber job was the one that um, was the best fit. So now I've been back a couple of years working, um, you know, working on, on public policy. We also, you know, it's a chamber. So we're doing a lot with, you know, helping businesses meet one another, B2B networking, leadership development, all those kinds of things. But I really enjoy most the the external stuff, um, working a lot in the area of workforce, 
over the last couple of years trying to solve our, um, especially in advanced manufacturing in Northern Kentucky, trying to make sure that our, our, our pipeline of workers gets filled so we can fill some of the, the vacancies that we've got, um, but also working with the legislature to pass laws. So it's really, it's, it's, as I tell people, I wake up every day thinking about how to make my hometown and my hometown businesses better. And um, that's my job on a daily basis, and it's a fun job to have. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's a, good, a good kind of job to have if you can do that. Um, now, I, I know when you took office as the Secretary of State in Kentucky, that was back in 2004, I believe, you, yeah. were, you were only 31, and at, I believe at that point you were the youngest Secretary of State in the country. Is that right? Yes, so, I was. Now, from what I've read, you really re-energized the office. You, you, you did a lot of new things. It kind of brought the kind of drive and energy that you would expect a, a young, energetic person to bring to the position. And of course, now we're in a presidential race where the two main candidates, Donald Trump, who's 70, and Hillary Clinton, who's 68, are the oldest ever. And so I'm wondering, would you say that their age is a legitimate concern, especially when we're talking about just about the most demanding political office there is? Yeah, it is. And in fact, it bothers me a little bit how um, how neither one of them has been that forthcoming about their health records. Um, given given their ages, and as you said, given the, the history-making aspect of both of their candidacies. I mean, as I recall, when Senator McCain was running in 08, he was a little bit more more forthcoming about his record, um, his health records, and I think President Reagan was back in 1980 when he first ran. Um, it, is, it is ironic. I mean, we're in a day and age where the younger voters, the millennial and Gen Xers, are now actually the majority of the electorate, maybe not the majority of those who actually cast the votes, but the majority of the electorate, and um, we have a president who's young, who's leaving office, who's younger, <laughs> right. you know, than both of um, both of the candidates who the party's nominated to succeed him. Um, so it is, it is kind of, you know, I guess this is maybe the last gasp for the baby boomers um, for the for the presidency. And with with technology and the fast pace of everything, it is ironic that they're the two that that emerge. But the flip side of that is the two of them have, I think, um, and this isn't why they necessarily got the nomination, but both of them. Are, are are successful in in this kind of the celebrity driven culture we have right now, not just in politics, but in everything. And they're the two biggest celebrities, you know, who who were in the races. Right. Hillary Clinton has been a national celebrity since 1992, when she and her husband really burst in the scenes when he um, started campaigning for president. I mean, late I guess late 91. Um, and Donald Trump goes back even longer into the early, you know, early mid 80s. I mean, I remember when I was in middle school, I think I read Art of the Deal back <laughs> in middle school or something right. like that. He's been around for a long, long time. And, and you know, obviously on, on reality, you know, the joke is that the reality television is what people watch nowadays. And so it makes sense that our, the two candidates are sort of the most reality-like stars we could have possibly had. In fact, that they're not just reality-like, they are reality stars. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. So, you know, going back to Donald Trump, what do you, what would you say that the rise of Donald Trump says about, I guess, just politics in general? And you kind of touched on that a little bit, but also the Republican Party in, in particular. I mean, I, this is, you know, a very unusual presidential election, most people would say. Uh, is, is there anything that, that you take away from this about politics and the state of the Republican Party? Yeah, I mean, one, I mean, one is the celebrity nature of the candidacies. I believe that did help him a great deal, especially when you in the fact that he had so many candidates that he was running against that um, it was hard for any one of them to, they were all kind of competing to be the other and they would beat each other up and they would divide and 
they didn't, you know, they would just allow themselves to sort of split the vote and never emerge until it was too late to take them on one-on-one because, you know, none of them were strong enough to be that that challenger. And so some of this is, I think, you know, if, if you had maybe fewer candidates running or some different decisions that had made, you know, maybe maybe let's say Bush and Rubio, only one of them ran, maybe that would have made a difference. I don't really know, but I, I don't I don't I don't discount the fact that some of his rise is just because of the sort of the types of candidates he ran against. But then but then I think the more substantive thing is that, you know, the Republican Party base has gotten um, whiter and older uh, over the last couple of cycles. And Trump appealed best to those voters. Um, and in some respects, he tapped into them um, with policy proposals, with rhetoric, with style, um, you know, with his celebrity, with acknowledging their plight. Um, he also tapped into the sort of the resentment of the, of the party elites and Wall Street elites and sort of elites in general um, by clearly not being the guy that they wanted to, to run. So he kind of ran against them. And because he had the money and the name ID, he could do that. Uh, and that's been a fairly successful strategy for the last couple of years, especially if you look who was the runner up, Ted Cruz, who has also kind of pursued that strategy to quite a bit of success. Yeah. Um, but what's striking to me is, you know, in a, in a year when you think that the one thing that would completely unify the Republican Party is trying to keep Hillary Clinton from being president or or just in general, a Democrat from being in office for a third term, setting aside who it is that there's so much consternation and worry about Trump that you've got a lot of party leaders, a lot of elected officials who refuse to endorse him, yeah. um, even give lip service. I mean, you've got, um, you know, the governor of Ohio has a convention in his state and he just doesn't go to the convention. So he doesn't have to do it. Um, yeah. You know, I saw a story today, Mike governor Pence, who's the Donald Trump's running mate is in Utah doing something with Senator Mike Lee. Mike Lee hasn't endorsed the ticket. He says, well, I like Mike Pence, but I'm not so sure about the top of the ticket. And he still hasn't endorsed the top of the ticket. This is a sitting U.S. senator. And so you see all these people who know that when they do that, they're weakening Trump's chances at winning. And they don't really care because I guess they feel like the, you know, him as the president is such a distasteful notion um, that they're willing to, you know, to withhold their endorsement. And in a few cases of, of not necessarily big party leaders, but some some Republican um, appointed officials actually endorsing Clinton. So it's a it's a it's a divided party. And, and Secretary Clinton's really been the beneficiary of it. I mean, she's got terrible numbers, except she's running against somebody with worse. Yeah, numbers. The, the second most unpopular <laughs> candidate ever to run, you know, yeah. <laughs> against the, yeah. the most. And so, it, yeah, and as we're recording this today, she, you know, this news story today that the FBI dumped a bunch of the notes that really makes, you know, brings back the email scandal, makes her look worse um, with some of the, you know, having 13 different phones and some things where maybe, I'm not saying she lied, but like it just, it made it look worse than you would have even thought in this Friday news dump. And, but she's running against Donald Trump and he's still, she's probably still going to win. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, you've been, by my accounts, active in Republican politics now for over two decades. So you've obviously seen a lot in, in those decades. And I'm wondering, how would you say that your party has, has changed? And have those changes been for the better or worse, kind of a mixed bag or, or what, in your view? Well, you know, I think um, it, it has been an interesting 20 years. I mean, I think if you go back to, I mean, I'll start at the local level in northern Kentucky, I was telling somebody who moved to our neighborhood to, or to Northern Kentucky recently that it wasn't until 1998 that Republicans really controlled Northern Kentucky local politics. And the person was like, you're kidding me, given the stranglehold that right, Republicans yeah. have, basically all the county offices and all but a few legislative offices. But it's true. 
And so I think that's been really, I think, striking. And, and um, you know, at the county level at, in northern Kentucky, I, the, the judge executives who are Republicans have done a pretty good job of, of, um, of, uh, of, of leading their counties. And we've had pretty good economic growth and, and working together on a regional basis. So I think that's been pretty successful. Um, we've struggled, I think, at the state level in Kentucky of transitioning from what we started as, you know, we're still in this two-party system, but you can kind of feel that we're gradually moving away from a two-party system where the Republicans are probably going to end up taking over the House at some point. Right. Just It just seems natural, whether it's this time or two years or four years, that that's going to take place. As a state, we've really struggled with that. Um, and, and there is this divide inside the Republican Party between kind of the rural populist Republicans and a little bit more of the urban populist uh, or urban Republicans. And, you know, there have been some some. Um, so I think we're and at the national level. We haven't elected a Republican president since 2004. You know, and what a, whatever the statistic is, I think in that time period, we've only had and only in 04 has the Republican gotten the majority of the vote. Right. Um, you know, in 2000, President Bush won, but he didn't have the majority of the, the popular vote. He said the majority of the Electoral College. So it's it's been a real struggle. And the whole point of a political party is to try to elect candidates who represent the views of the people inside of that party. And in, or, and, and in our two-party system, that requires some compromise because no party is going to perfectly represent the views of 51% of the electorate or something like that. And um, I think as a republic, as a party, we've been struggling over the last um, couple of years of trying to figure out how do we get to 51 um, where we can have a governing coalition. And, and there is this dispute right now about do we move more to the right? Do we move more? You know, do we become more of an open tent? Um, but I think demographically, we're going to have to figure out how to better appeal to younger voters, because those younger voters are going to become older voters, <laughs> and right. they're going to become the dominant voices inside um, American politics. And and so um, that's a struggle that we haven't we haven't dealt with. We're lucky because the Democrats aren't exactly doing a great job. Um, you know, if you look at uh, um, you know, they're getting the votes, but younger voters, by and large, seem to be a lot more independent and a lot less tied to any particular party than, say, my generation. So there's some opportunities, but we're squandering it. And um, we got to, you know, I don't know that Donald Trump was the right kind of nominee to help reverse that trend. It might yeah. require another presidential cycle uh, to fix this and some more um, some more wrangling inside the party to, to figure out what our future holds. Yeah, you know, I wanted to ask you about that specifically, uh, millennials. I've seen a few studies on party identification of millennials. There was one, uh, Pew Research Center did one in 2015, and uh, millennials favored Democrats over Republicans by something like 51 to 35. And uh, I'm wondering, why is it you think that the, the Republican Party isn't as strong with younger voters, and, and what can the party do to attract more of them? Well, you know, one issue that the, the Republican Party is struggling with younger voters is marriage equality. I mean, that's one where if you look at the views of Republican, even younger Republicans, they tend to be much more supportive of, of, of marriage equality or same-sex marriage than older voters um, inside the Republican Party. And I think one of the challenges is is that um, that issue moved really quickly and the Republicans got identified with being the, the party that was opposed to that. Um, that may fade away because the Supreme Court decision um, you know, at least on marriage, has settled that issue. But then you have all the religious freedom and some of these other ways that it um, exhibits itself. But that's an issue where on, on, on social issues, and I don't, I, I don't think abortion is one of them because abortion, depending upon how you ask the question, is one that sort of doesn't seem to have the same generational divide, at least in some surveys. But on same-sex marriage is definitely one of them. 
Um, what's interesting for Republicans, though, is there is this libertarian streak mm-hmm. among millennials. And, and some of this is just because they watch government and other large institutions fail. And so they have a lot of distrust in these kinds of institutions. And so that creates a, a libertarian um, strategy for Republicans to try to tap in to, um, you know, to younger voters and say, look, you know, you, you don't trust these institutions. Why would you want to give them more power? Therefore, you know, right. better than this, but yeah. that creates an opening. But if the party is not viewed as welcoming and, and to the diverseness of young voters, I mean, the millennials are the most diverse generation we've ever had in America. And so if our party is not viewed as, as welcoming to folks who have different sexual orientations or different ethnic backgrounds or where they came from in the world, um, we're not going to be able to make the case on um, the substance on the other policies. And so that that uh, that phase to our party um, has to change. And that's probably the threshold issue. Um, that's why candidates like Marco Rubio, um, you know, I think caused a lot of us inside the party to say, you know, he we want him to be the future face of our party. Maybe he wasn't ready this time or maybe it's not him, um, but somebody like him who can communicate and represent, hey, this is a different kind of America. But let me make a case for why a conservative or more libertarian um types of policies, the best approach, he might be the kind of messenger we could have that could be successful. Right. Well, you know, another issue, it strikes me that is similar in the sense of how quickly it moved uh, to uh, to the uh, gay marriage issue is uh, marijuana legalization, which has yeah. you know, been huge in the last few years. And yet this is another issue where uh, there seems to be a fairly stark party split in many cases. I mean, do you, do you see that as kind of a, an issue that gives gives the Republican Party problems with younger voters? Yeah, that, uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I will say that's one I haven't thought as much about. Um, just, uh, it, But in part, I think, because in Kentucky, we haven't dealt with it as directly. I mean, we're, we're approaching it on the hemp side of things, but not on, um, you know, not on the marijuana side, even on medicinal side. It hasn't really caught a lot of traction here. But it, it is interesting, um, and it is something where there is, you know, you do have this libertarian side of the Republican Party that would be pro-legalization. But you're right, for the most part, the, the you know, the platforms and the, the main party leaders are, are against it. You know, I don't know whether that one is a threshold of an issue as uh, or as primary, you know, as big of an issue as maybe marriage would be in trying to attack, uh, trying to um, attract the votes of younger right. voters. But we'll see. And, and we're, we're seeing a lot of experience played out in a lot of different states. And so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Because um, we're going to see previews of how to play at the national level, at, you know, in, in different states. You know, I, I found it especially interesting, or I don't know, even maybe a little ironic that Kentucky. Of course, there's uh, uh, there's plenty of marijuana grown in Kentucky. In fact, by some by some surveys, it's suggested it's in the top top three, top five. Though it can be difficult to measure, and yet uh, the state in general doesn't seem at all interested in kind of moving forward on that issue. No, you're you're right. I mean, it is <laughs> it is one of the. I wouldn't even call it a secret because you're right. I think most people believe that uh, you know both quantity and quality were near the top. Um, we have seen this uh, a push of the last couple of years to try to um, you know on the, on the hemp movement with industrial hemp and things like that. Um, but there has not been a real big push, and I, I guess you could say that's consistent with some of the religious nature of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where still a lot of the state you can't buy alcohol. Um, at a bar or even at a restaurant that is primarily a restaurant and not a bar. Uh, although that's changing over the last couple of years. It's certainly, certainly, pardon the pun, gotten watered down. <laughs> yeah. 
um, you know, you used to be able to say that Christian County was was uh, wet and Bourbon County was dry. And I think actually Bourbon County, even at least at restaurants, I think is now wet. Uh, so it's changed it some, but yeah. uh, my guess is that that same temperance movement on the alcohol side is probably um, to partially explain why we haven't seen a real push on the marijuana side. Right. So, you know, a lot of people would say that today politics, at least especially maybe at the national level, is is nastier and it's more dysfunctional than it's been, well, some would say since practically the Civil War era. And I'm wondering if you agree with that. And, and if you do, uh, what do you think we could do about it? Well, I wasn't around back then. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, it's it, it, it could be, you know, there's I, you hear that and, and it certainly does seem like it's gotten nastier, if you will, over the last few years. I mean, some, some, I've read some some folks would make the case that that maybe there was a little, a little bit of an aberration, um, you know, in the in the 20 to 30 years before today, that it really has always been pretty bad. And, and what we saw was an aberration. You know, I think the one thing that's different definitely today is technology. And so with technology, you can um, communicate a lot more. You can communicate in much more, um, you know, in much more anonymous kinds of ways. Um you know, with, with through comment sections and um, sharing of information and, and, and that sort of thing. It also allows you to get more information. I mean, all this is there's there's the technology in the whole is you can't say it's good or bad. I mean, you can get more information than ever before. You can find people who have similar views so you can organize better. Um, and that's nice. But then there's also this problem where you, you only listen and read to the sources of information that reinforce what you had to believe. Right. Uh, and sometimes the anonymity causes people to say things that they otherwise wouldn't say if you were face-to-face um, or even if you had to attach your name to something, even if you weren't face-to-face. Um, but, but the reality is it's, it's here to stay. And at the end of the day, I think until the voters decide that, um, you know, they want to have different types of elected officials or want to vote on different ways, I mean, I, I think that's just going to be the way it's, the way it is. As a, as a candidate, as a past candidate, and someday, someday I'd like to be a future candidate, you know, you got to have a thick skin, and but I don't know how different that's been ever. <laughs> you yeah. know, um, you run; it's a choice. People vote for you; they vote against you. Um, sometimes that's personal. Sometimes it has nothing to do with you. They just they don't know anything about you. They just happen to be for the other candidate, um, and it makes it it makes it really hard. I I do think that the um, I mean, I think the fact that both parties seem to be pulling a little bit to their extremes might cause um, the vitriol to be a little bit worse. Um, and, I, and I, there is does seem to be a little bit of a sorting going on in the country where you don't see as much mixing of people who have different backgrounds or different ideologies or things like that. And um, and that may be uh, partially what's going on as well. Well, you know, and some people would argue that uh, uh, things were a lot more uh, were a lot nicer back back in the day, because at least at the national level, uh, Republicans were a small minority, at least in, in mostly in the House. And, you know, Democrats had practically a stranglehold. And when things started to get uh, competitive in the early to mid 1990s, uh, all of a sudden, then things got nastier. And, and I thought, well, sure, it's kind of like the difference between, say, uh, in, in football, the Steelers and the uh, the Steelers and the Bengals versus the Steelers and the Browns. You know, one's a pretty nasty rivalry because anyone can win, but uh, but but with the Steelers and the Browns, not so much. And for a long time, at least congressionally, the Republicans were kind of like the Browns, unfortunately. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's actually, I think, a really good point. When the stakes are high, when you actually think you can win, you know, we've seen that certainly in Kentucky, heck, even this week, 
with some of the some of the comments back and forth between the governor and the speaker of the house because we know the house is in play. Yeah. And if if Governor Bevin knew that he had to deal with Greg Stumbo as the speaker for his entire term, he might treat him differently than if he thinks that, well, if I can pick up a couple of seats, I don't have to deal with him as speaker anymore. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's, I guess, the other thing is we've had a lot of close elections. And when it, whenever each side thinks they can win, um, then the election becomes Armageddon. And it also, the other element of this is it also reduces your likelihood to want to compromise. Yeah. Regardless of tone. If you feel like you might have a better bargaining position in two years because you have um, the election shuffles the deck a little bit, your your out you know your your optimal position might be to to not compromise or or to um, you know to fight and uh, and hope that you have a better position in a couple more years. Right. Yeah. And that's probably part of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I, now on the state level, certainly the future, at least the near term future, looks really bright for Republicans in, in the state in, in Kentucky. Uh, but what do you see as the challenges for the Republican Party at, at the national level? The biggest ones that you mentioned millennials already. But aside from that, what do you see as the big challenges now and maybe in the near term future? Well, um, I mean, the, the millennials is, I think, is certainly part of it. The electoral map of the presidential race has become a problem for the Republicans. I mean, we have a much narrower path to to win, and some of our larger states are starting to become more into play. You know, not this cycle, but Texas is becoming much more diverse. And you know, all of a sudden, if you put those electoral votes in play, while a state like California has become less likely in play, and so that electoral college map is uh, is a challenge. Um, I think that the um, so that you know that's one. I mean, I think a lot. Of it, if you start from the presumption that Trump likely loses this race, then you're going to have another three, you know, four years where the Republican Party doesn't have a leader. Right. And not having a leader is difficult. It, um, you know, the Democrats went through this when uh, you know Reagan won in eighty eighty four, and then Bush won in eighty eight. They're you know when they lost in eighty eight. Like, how could we lose to Bush? How could we? You know, it's very rare for parties to lose more than two in a row. And um, and they recalibrated and they, you know, in 1992, they they nominated somebody who was a little bit more of a centrist candidate because they thought that, you know, that candidate appealed. And I think probably some of that was pragmatic. And so out of this, do you react to elect somebody who's maybe a little bit more closer to the middle or do you elect somebody who fires at the base a little bit more? And so um, another few more years in the wilderness would will be hard. Um, you know, I think one of the big, the biggest things that's right now going on in politics is that the off-year electorate is so much different than the presidential year electorate. Oh, yeah. That we keep getting shifted, you know, like, like twisted back and forth where you've got Democrats have a more favorable electorate where in the presidential years, Republicans have one in the off years. And it really is hard to govern a country like that. Um, if that were to change in some way, shape or form, um, that could real have, have a real uh, – uh, impact on um, you know on our politics. Yeah, I know one thing that I've heard from a number of Republicans is, uh, especially with concern about the Donald Trump campaign, is uh, the the demographic reality that uh, Hispanics are becoming a much larger uh, uh, portion of the electorate, and and of course Donald Trump is certainly not doing a whole lot to win win over them as as previous uh, Republican candidates. I would say what I remember, especially George W. Bush made made a real effort, and, and some others have as well, and so. It seems to me that's a that's a pretty reasonable concern for uh, the party to have going forward. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a um, it's a growing part of the electorate. Um, we just have to do better. Period. I mean, and, and um, that's just the reality of you know again of a two party system. Parties have to be able to take in movements and absorb them. Um, otherwise, the two party system doesn't 
doesn't survive. And you also have to be able to appeal to the electorate as you see it. And, um, and right now, um, if we do not um, appeal better to younger voters or Hispanic voters, um, the future is going to be bleak. And, and so it may be that, that it's still called the Republican Party, but it looks very different um, because uh, I, I don't know. But it is, it, it is a real demographic challenge that we have. And um, how the party grapples with this over the next couple of years is um, is going to, you know, <laughs> play a big role in what kinds of policies are adopted by the country and um, you know the sustainability of a two-party system because it, it could be there's nothing in the there's nothing in the rule book that says you have to have two parties. Right. We have a bunch of laws that um, promote it. Kentucky, for example, by statute, we have a two-party system. Um, but nationally, we don't need to have a two-party system. We could have, we could break into a multi-party system um, if we can't, uh, if we can't fix this. That would be something. Uh, one, yeah. final, one final question, Brian. I've already taken up a lot of your time, and I appreciate that. Bob, how do you keep up with politics? I mean, are there any, um, um, I don't know, books, TV shows, document, documentaries, websites, or whatever that you might uh, that, that you might recommend to listeners? Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm both old school and new school, so I read a lot. I actually don't watch TV that much. Um, honestly, no offense, don't listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, <laughs> but I, I read a lot of newspapers, but I read them online. So and I and I get a lot of news off of Twitter. Um, you know, I know Twitter as a business model might they might be struggling, but it's a great place to get political news. And so I follow um, candidates and pundits and um, and try to use I try to use I use Instapaper where I'll see a link. I'm like, that looks interesting. And I save the link and I come back and read it later. So I'll, I'll, you know, dive in in the morning and maybe a couple times during the day and then maybe at night. And then I read when I get a chance. Um, but, you know, the Times, the Journal, uh, Politico, um, and then there's certain reporters that I really like. On the Republican side, uh, Byron York, who writes for the Washington Examiner, he's a mm-hmm. reporter slash columnist, always has just amazing insights. Um, I've always been really impressed with him. Um, not on, he's not on TV a whole lot, but he's just a great, great writer and often um, makes, you know, goes against conventional wisdom and ends up being right. Um, Robert Costa, who writes for the Washington Post, is really good at breaking stories too. But I also try to read stuff, you know, I'm a Republican, I try to read stuff from, um, you know, on the left as well. So there's some, you know, try to follow a lot of the folks I knew from the IOP. That, that was one of the things that helped me was at Harvard. I got to know a lot of the, the, the journalists. And um, but I, what I do find, like if a guy like Jonathan Martin on The New York Times, he tweets a lot. And so whenever he's always filtering things for me. Right. And if Jonathan thinks it's interesting, then I usually means I need to read it, too. All right. Um, but but uh, but Twitter and, um, and just reading a whole heck of a lot, because one of the things I've discovered is I don't necessarily know what a lot of elected officials or reporters look like because I'm not watching the cable news shows. Um, or watching videos or anything like that because I'm just reading the uh, reading the stories and so I, I, it was funny when I was watching the conventions this year I was like oh that's what that person looks like yeah yeah oh, that's I, what that person sounds like I knew all about them I just didn't know what they sounded like or looked like because I've been reading them um, for many many years yeah I, I have the same I, we, it sounds like we have very similar approaches and I have the the, the same issue where I, where I don't necessarily know what they look like or sometimes if I'm if I'm doing the show I need to check to see how somebody's name is pronounced because I've just read all about them and haven't necessarily heard yeah. about them on you know so so yeah, yeah. but uh, all right well thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me I've won with that so uh, again thanks so much for coming on the show and talking to me today you're welcome really enjoyed it thanks Michael Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. 
If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future guests, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. Our Facebook page, where Jay and I post and comment on news throughout the week, and where you can join in, too, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would really appreciate it if you could take just a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. And if you like what we're doing and want us to be able to keep on doing it, a donation of even a dollar or two would really help. You'll find donation links on our site, politicsguys.com. 